Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that we're all back. Thank you for the break. For many of us, Father, it was a chance to do a lot of things we enjoyed this summer. And hopefully, Father, a time for all of us to recharge our batteries and get excited again at the prospect of spending time in your word. And I thank you, Father, that with that break, now we're ready. And you brought us back. You filled a room, and I'm thankful for that. And you are prepared by your word to fill our hearts. Father, we have a book in front of us that was written long ago by a man we'll never meet in this life, but we will one day. But the author, Father, has already made himself known to us and lives inside us, the Spirit of God. And we know that because he wrote it, it has been written with your wisdom. And because the Spirit has been with us, we will understand it by his counsel. I thank you, Father, that we have that opportunity. So all that remains is for us to give our attention to it, Father, and to be diligent. And I pray that that diligence wouldn't end tonight. I pray that you would give each of us the opportunity, the desire, the mindset to follow through on what we begin. That you would clear our calendars not just for tonight, but every night that comes in this series. That you'd be, be with us, Father, so that we would always put this as a priority in our life. And we would seek you first, sit at your feet, and leave the dishes to someone else. And that we would be ready for whatever you bring us. I pray this, Father, knowing that you are here to teach and we are all here to learn. And I am not that one who teaches, but you are. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you all know the series is four books. Tonight's study is going to start in Jude. Subsequent nights down the road to go into 2 John, 3 John, and lastly, Galatians. This study, Jude, being a relatively short book, as well as 2 and 3 John, for that matter, will come in fairly rapid succession. But by the time we're about halfway through the semester, we should be into Galatians. And then from there on to Christmas, we'll finish Galatians. At least that's the plan. We'll start tonight, as I said, with Jude. And there are a few studies of Scripture that combine so few verses with so much intrigue and mystery as the book of Jude. In fact, there's a quick poll. How many in here have ever been in an organized study of any kind through the book of Jude. For the record, I think two hands in the room went up. And that's very typical. This letter is only 25 verses. And though it's a very quick read, it's one of the least often studied books in the Bible, in my experience. Jude's letter invites a lot of wonder. It invites a lot of confusion as well. And that's due mainly to the fact that it makes frequent reference to extra-biblical material. And the author himself makes little attempt in the course of the letter to explain all these fleeting references we're going to encounter to the strange and marvelous things that he writes about or that others have written about. So as a result, generations of Christians have neglected to look at this book, largely, I think, out of ignorance of what it holds. And yet the kind of thing you give your least attention to can often be the thing that has the most value, kind of like the check engine light on your car. All this is ironic because... The purpose Jude had in writing was to warn the church against overlooking something. Overlooking false teachers, in this case, who had arrived in the church. A few years before he wrote it, perhaps as much as a decade, Peter, the Apostle Peter, had written a letter to Jewish believers in the church who were living in the diaspora. The diaspora just refers to ten Greek cities in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey and areas nearby, outside Palestine, where a lot of Jews had settled outside their land, and as they became Christians in these regions, diaspora churches emerged, churches of Jewish believers in this Greek region, and collectively, these cities held the bulk 
of the early church, of the Jewish early church in the first century in the diaspora. In our New Testament, there are five letters written to these Jewish believers specifically. We call them the Jewish epistles. We're talking about the letters of Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and Jude. Those letters are the Jewish epistles. In Peter's second letter, he warned the church in the diaspora that wicked men, false teachers, were going to come. They were going to come to the church with the intent to corrupt the faith. Peter began the second chapter of his second letter this way. He says in 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. So in Jude's day now, those false teachers had in fact arrived in the diaspora, just as Peter predicted. So Jude writes to encourage the churches to recognize and respond to the fulfillment of Peter's prophecy. Now, Jude's letter shares another common feature with all the other Jewish epistles. Besides its audience, he also has a tendency to borrow liberally from Jewish history and Jewish writing to make his point, to prove what he says. And this is because the Jewish people knew their past, their, their ancestors and the history of their nation better than perhaps any nation did. And that's because so much of it was recorded in Scripture as Scripture and then preserved as such. But depending on which school of Jewish teaching or Jewish thought you might be from in your family or in your tribe or in your history, that would alter your understanding of the meaning of that history. You knew the facts. But to explain why it happened or what its meaning was would vary depending on which sect of Judaism or in which part of the world you might live. So the New Testament Jewish letters, these Jewish epistles, they all commonly draw from that history in order to make theological application, in order to explain why or for what reason the nation of Israel perished in the desert or why the Lord was so angry with that generation as opposed to others, and what it meant that they all fell in 40 years, as the writer of Hebrews talks about, for example. Those lessons had theological importance to the New Testament believer. So to understand any of the Jewish epistles properly, that puts a burden on us, which we'll have to attack as we go through this letter. And that burden is that at times we'll spend time outside the letter looking at the Old Testament history that these writers refer to so that we can get a better perspective on what they're talking about. But as I said, Jude's letter is unique for several reasons, not just that. In fact, there are five reasons for why this letter is unique in the New Testament. First, the structure. It's very poetic. Jude displays this remarkable affinity and love for triplets. And I'm not talking about his dating life. He has, he has a tendency to use something called triads. The triad is a thought expressed in threes. So how are you feeling today? Pretty good, fine, not too bad. That's a triad. He uses triads so extensively that in a letter that only has 25 verses, there's 14 triads. And these triads offer a convenient way for us to organize our study. In a sense, the letter has an outline with 14 points. And so we're going to use the triads as our mile markers as we move through the letter. Second thing that makes this book so unique, it's the only book of the New Testament scripture that's sourced by someone other than an apostle. And Jude specifically excludes himself from the company of such men as we'll see when we look in verse 17. Some of you, especially if you're a more seasoned Bible student, you're probably thinking 
that I made a mistake in what I just said, because you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. Luke is not an apostle. Mark was not an apostle. True. Luke and Mark were not apostles, but Luke's material was sourced by Paul and Mark's material was sourced by Peter. So they're considered authentic in the sense that they're scripture because their source was an apostolic source. All other letters are directly written by apostles, all other books in the New Testament. So other than Jude, all books of the New Testament are sourced by an apostle. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it is also true that the early church fathers universally accepted the authority of this letter and considered it inspired. Jude had a ministry as a traveling evangelist, and he took his wife with him everywhere he went. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Perhaps he was accompanied by an apostle in the same way that Luke accompanied Paul. That may have explained why he had apostolic authority or was assumed to have it. In fact, Jude did have a very close connection to apostles. In fact, he had a family connection to an apostle. And that brings me to the third distinction in Jude's letter. Jude is one of only two New Testament authors who can claim a family connection to Christ, albeit half-brothers. He was, in this case, a half-brother of Jesus, a full brother of James, and we're speaking of the James who wrote the letter by the same name. Because of his relationship to Jesus, Jude's sons and grandsons were considered descendants of the house of David and of the house of Joseph and Mary, because literally they were. Therefore, they were also considered a threat to Roman rule. When the Roman emperor Domitian heard that the sons and grandsons of Jude were out proclaiming a new kingdom, he arrested them. He suspected they were trying to reestablish the Jewish kingdom in place of Roman rule, much as their supposed great uncle, half uncle, had done centuries earlier. Greek historians record that when Jude's grandsons defended themselves in front of the emperor, they did so by showing Caesar their rough hands, which were characteristic of a life of hard labor. They used that to prove that they were merely working peasants, not nobility seeking a kingdom in this world. They were, as it said, men who were seeking a kingdom that is not of this world. And so with that defense, they were let go. So Jude's third distinction is that it's one of the two letters written by someone who could claim some kind of family connection to Christ. Fourth, Jude's letter is unique for the way it quotes from another letter of Scripture. Jude quotes no less than 13 times in 25 verses from the second letter of Peter. If he had quoted any more from Peter, we would have been calling this letter the third letter of Peter. He quotes so much because his purpose in writing is to tell the Jewish believers, Peter told you so. Peter warned believers that false teachers would come in the future. Jude's purpose in writing is they're here. We'll look at that more as well. Finally, Jude is the only author of Scripture to quote from apocryphal literature, which are ancient books of wisdom that are commonly portrayed as inspired or Scripture, but they're not. Jude quotes from two books, and particularly quotes from a book called The Assumption of Moses and another called The Book of Enoch. Jude's quotes are serious points of controversy and have been for years, and maybe that's part of the reason why people shy away from the book, because we know that apocryphal writing is not Scripture. And so the concern is, well, what does it mean when something that is not Scripture is quoted in Scripture? Well, that's easy. It becomes Scripture. <laughs> but still, we know those extra-biblical works are rife with error and myth and outright heresy. So it becomes a concern that he sourced thought from those books. 
They and, and honestly, those apocryphal writings are especially dangerous because there are traditions in which those books take on spiritual meaning in which they're considered inspired and thereby introduce error and heresy into the canon. The false canon, but nonetheless into the minds of those who follow it. We're going to see as we get through the book and go to those points where those quotes appear that his choice to incorporate some of those details does not mean he endorsed the entire work. And as we encounter the quotes, we'll examine them. Let's move to the text. That's enough intro. Let's get into the text tonight. Now, this is a, a letter of 25 verses, and you're going to get your money's worth. I don't want you to just run through the whole book in one night. That's not very fun. So we're going to take our time with this book, but that's really more about the content than about any contrived effort on my part. There is so much in this book, even within those 25 verses, that we will move with some diligence. I'm guesstimating four weeks or so to get through it, and tonight we'll do three verses. That's not a joke. Which leads me to the opening verse of the letter. And in the opening verse, you have both the first and the second triads of the 14. You'll notice there is only one chapter, by the way. So we don't quote Jude in terms of chapter, which is Jude and then the verse number. Here's a trivia question. How many books of the Bible only have one chapter? Five. Jude, we'll begin with verses one and two. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. That's the salutation of the book. Every letter typically starts with one. And we'll take our time to examine it. Let's start with the name, Jude. As simple as it may sound, that's a more complex conversation than you realize because Jude is not the name of the guy who wrote this book. His actual name is Judah, or in Greek, Judas. Jude is a contrived English version of his name. The name Judas, as you know, has come to have a very strong negative connotation as a result of Judas Iscariot. It's interesting that both the letter Jude and the letter Peter were written about the same time to about the same people, about the same topics. And yet there's a lot of Peters running around and very few Judases. And it's because that name carries that negative connotation. So when the first English version of the Bible was translated, when the English translators came to the letter of Judas, They elected to translate his name to Jude in order to distance this author from Judas the traitor. Jude is not a name. It's a made up word. But it's become his name for us because of that distinction. By the way, there is also an apocryphal book called the Gospel of Judas. Even though the change was purely contrived out of respect for tradition and familiarity, I'm just going to call it Jude. Jude identifies himself in the traditional way of most epistle writers. He says, I am a bondservant of Christ. Now, I'm not going to belabor the term bondservant. We've probably covered it in here, that term at past times. You all probably heard it from others. It's the word doulos in Greek, literally the word slave. But in Greek society, it meant a certain kind of slave, one that had entered into that relationship voluntarily, joyfully even, in the joy over who their master was and over the benefits that it gave them. Once they were in that arrangement, however, it was a permanent arrangement. They could never get out of it. They had no option later to veto that decision. So what Jude is saying is, I am, by my own identification, a man bound to serve Jesus Christ for life. I am his slave. It's always fascinated us that these men did not choose to identify themselves by their human relationship to Jesus. There's no mention here that he was the half-brother. Neither did James say that. You might suppose that having such an intimate family connection with the Lord of the church would have been something these two men might have worn like a badge of honor, right? They could have leveraged it even. They could have leveraged that association to gain some added respect or authority for what they're writing about, what they're saying, or for their role in the church. Certainly, 
We can see something like that happening in the church today. Right now, as we sit here somewhere in the world today, there are men and women who are the direct descendants of Mary and Joseph. And as such, they are the long lost family that includes Jesus. Now, granted, Jesus father was not Joseph. So we understand that this isn't the same kind of human relationship you and I have with normal human beings. We understand that. But still, the way human beings think about such things, it wouldn't be a stretch that someone could turn around and say, I'm the direct descendant of the family of Jesus and use that in some personal way. Do you think if we could do that, somebody would be trying? I'm sure there's people trying, even though we can't do it. So why doesn't James and Jude do that? Why do they completely ignore their family connection to Jesus? And that the answer is because neither of these men came to know their brother as Messiah until after his resurrection. Although they grew up with him in the same home, they never believed his claim to be Messiah until after he had been killed and was resurrected and appeared to them in his resurrected form. We know that from several places, but you hear it clearly in John's gospel, John 7, 5. John writes, for not even his brothers were believing in him. It still blows my mind to imagine what Jude must have thought at the very first moment he came to faith in Christ, his earthly half-brother. To realize in that moment that the older brother that you had grown up around, played with, spent time with, ate with, was actually the God who created the universe and all that it contains. Can you imagine that? I mean, we know younger siblings are always being compared. They have the indignity of always being compared to that older, overachieving brother. But this is ridiculous, right? Where do you even begin with that? No wonder he was mom's favorite. So I believe we can be sure James and Jude's delayed understanding of who Jesus was actually detracted from their credibility within the body of Christ. It was a point of shame for both of them, at least internally, if not externally. And especially the fact that their deeds were captured in John's seventh chapter, where we see them mocking Jesus's claim to be Messiah. So these men correctly set aside any claim to being special or worthy of any kind of greater respect or any of such thing because of an association with a man that they didn't even understand he was Christ while others did. And then instead of making reference to their human relationship, to Jesus, they emphasize their spiritual relationship to Christ. Whatever earthly relationship they may have had and whatever temptation they may have had to share that with other people, all of that was put aside when they came to faith because in coming to faith in the Messiah, that rendered utterly meaningless the human connection they had to him. This is not some show of false modesty on their part, I don't think. This is consistent with the Bible's teaching on all our identities as believers. We become followers of Jesus Christ. We are born again, spiritually speaking. And just as our physical birth gained us some kind of physical relationships that then follow us through life, our parents, our siblings, etc. Similarly, when you experience a spiritual rebirth, you gain a whole new set of relationships which don't just augment your current ones. In a literal sense, they replace them. And by replace, of course, we don't mean you then distance yourself from family or you ignore family relationships. What we're saying is from an eternal point of view, the bonds of earth dissolve at some point and in their place you find only the spiritual ones. So scripture says the relationships we gain through our spiritual birth take precedence now over the ones we have physically when they come into contention, if and when they come into contention. Even Jesus himself, when asked, To give preference to his earthly mother, 
and his unbelieving brothers who had tried to fight their way through the crowds to see him when everyone else was trying as well. Jesus says this, Luke 8, 21. He answered them and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these pointing to the crowd who hear the word of God and do it. Isn't it ironic that the James and the Jude of Scripture were actually not considered his brothers when they were his earthly brothers, according to Jesus, but became his brothers by faith afterward? In the way God reckons relationships from an eternal point of view. The family relationships I have here are ones I wish to see in heaven, but they don't exist in heaven because they exist here. They only exist in heaven if that relationship with Christ is established first. So that's the goal. So Jude and James make no reference to their earthly connections to Jesus. As far as these men are concerned, their earthly relationship was long gone. It no longer mattered. The only relationship that mattered was the one to the Lord. That's how they identify themselves. That is us as well, by the way. Our identity in this world is the same as our identity to come in the next, which is we are servants of Christ. So we may hold other affiliations for a time. I'm an Armstrong or we are Longhorns or Aggies or Texans, or we may take pride in our nationality, we're Americans, or our cultural heritage, or our past achievements, but never let those things define you, and never let them overshadow your identity in Christ. The one that I think tends to overshadow our identity in Christ the most often, without us even realizing it, is our nationality. We're American Christians in our minds. No, you're not. You're Christian. And if God calls you to live in another country, you become part of that country's culture to effectively minister to it. I become all things to all, so I may win a few. So our identity is only American because we happen to be born here and we're here for now. Does it matter to us in eternity what country we came from? No. That isn't to say we don't have a reason to be patriotic. That's not the point. These aren't mutually exclusive, mind you. What we're saying, though, is which one defines you? Which one takes precedence in your walk? When the time comes to decide between living in America or living in Africa for the sake of the gospel, if you're called to Africa, there's no choice. Your nationality plays no part in that decision. But since we're talking about identities, why did Jude call himself the brother of James? Kind of an interesting thing when you think about it. If you're going to pick the two, I'm half brother of Jesus from the brother of James. He picked James. Well, I think it's because we said earlier, Jude's not an apostle. But his brother had become the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And as such, he was the leader of the Jewish church informally. Jude, knowing that he's writing to a Jewish audience in the diaspora, makes this association to identify himself with his brother James and in so doing, gain some credibility. It may even be that Jude was an elder or other church leader in the Jewish church that would put him under James's authority, which then would let us tie Jude's letter in source back to James, working under that authority. Looking deeper at the first verse, you'll notice it ends with Jude's first triad, describing his audience as Christians. Jude says, we are the called, beloved by the Father, kept for Jesus, called, beloved, kept, triad. Jude neatly references the different roles of the three persons of the Godhead concerning our salvation. First, the call of the gospel is the work of the Holy Spirit. No one becomes a Christian unless and until the Holy Spirit draws us to the message of the gospel, according to Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12:3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the first thing he says is you were called, referring to the Holy Spirit indirectly. Secondly, the reason we even get called in the first place is because of the Father's love for us and his decision to demonstrate his love for us in the call. 
John's chapter six, John six sixty five. Jesus is quoted this way. And he was saying, for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. A grant of the father brings about the call of the spirit to lead us into faith. The father's love is the basis, therefore, for the entire plan of redemption and our opportunity to be a part of it. Jude reminds us that that call is evidence of the love of God. When you face one of those really dark moments that come along from time to time and you wonder, is God hearing me? Does God care? Does God really love me after all? You need to remember what Jude says. The very fact that you are in the family of God is proof all by itself and sufficient, I might add, that God loves you. Finally, the third piece, we are kept for Jesus. There's the third member of the Godhead showing up. Jesus is the focus of everything. It's all about him. And everything in creation, we're told in Colossians, is for Christ. You weren't saved, in other words, for your own sake. Your salvation was not a gift for you, according to Scripture. It was the Father's gift to the Son that you became one of His. Your salvation made you part of the bride for Christ, being kept by the Spirit, made spotless for the groom. So it's all about Jesus to His glory. So that's the first triad. Who are we? The letter is written to the believers. His second triad comes in the salutation. Once again, Jude succinctly sums up something spiritually. He sums up, in this case, the gifts God bestows upon believers as a result of God's plan of salvation. First, by our relationship in Christ, he says we receive mercy. This is always and necessarily the first thing that you have to think about when you consider the benefits of membership in the Christian club. It is mercy. That starts the process. Mercy from God's judgment, mercy from the wrath of God, mercy from an eternity spent in hell. That's the first thing that the believer becomes aware of in their walk of faith. Following that understanding of mercy comes peace. And knowing you have been reconciled with God by Christ, by the blood of Christ, because of his sacrifice, that leaves you sleeping at night in a way that's different than if you did not have that peace. And if you don't know that experience yet, it just means you're too young. Talk to someone who who feels the end of their life a lot closer than you do, and they can tell you that there is a palpable fear that exists in the lives of unbelievers concerning what the end of life is like. Whether it's the process of dying, whether it's the thought of dying, whether it's the prospect of what follows, the conscience has been prepared by God from the beginning to appreciate mortality in the face of eternity. So we live, on the other hand, Paul says, in hope. Our hope is knowing that this experience and this life is the worst we'll ever have. In contrast to the unbeliever, we have an assurance of heaven, a peace that unbelievers cannot experience and never do short of faith. So in the knowledge of mercy comes the opportunity for hope and a peace that abides and passes all understanding. Finally, having the mercy God makes available and the peace that it provides, we find love of a different kind. We are granted by the spirit capacity to love in a way that only God can, a kind of love that is self-sacrificial, a kind of love that is unconditional. Agape love, the Greek word that describes the love God has for us and that God makes available in us to show to others. 
Without God in us, the scripture teaches that no man can show that kind of love in a genuine way. So that even in the case of unbelievers who make sacrifice for others or demonstrate love for others, its motive is not true. There's something behind it that's not godly, according to scripture. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Doesn't mean the act didn't serve for some good purpose. Doesn't mean that it didn't benefit someone. It's not to say that it's all bad. We're saying that there is something essentially different about the kind of love God has for us that men feel for one another. And we can't experience it and share in it until we know him. It becomes a part of who we are. That love of God multiplies in us by this work of the spirit. And as we devote ourselves to coming to a greater knowledge of him and his word, that love is manifested. Paul calls it fruit of the spirit. As we devote ourselves to applying what we learn, the love we have spills over to others. So it grows in us and becomes part of who we are, then moves outward to others as we apply it. These gifts, these are spiritual awards, in a sense, that we receive. And through the mystery of spirit and flesh working together, the Lord manifests gifts in our physical nature and in our experience so that others would know that he is working through us. That's why the body is called the temple. Because in the way that the old physical building became a manifestation of God on earth and a place in which people could come to see him at work, similarly now the body of Christ is a living organism of temple wherever we go in which the work of God is evident and people can come and meet him. Of course, that means we have to expose him by our life. We receive spiritual mercy, which yields in us greater capacity for kindness and mercy toward other sinners We receive spiritual peace that passes understanding, which enables us to walk without fear into the face of persecution and trial to go to the other side of the world and be a missionary when no one else would want to do it. And we receive the spiritual gift of God's love, which manifests in us fruit that turns into the opportunity to show love to others. This is a wonderful plan of God to use us for his glory. So Jude, in his beginning, says who he is, who we are and who God is. Then In verse 3, Jude states his purpose in writing. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Like all Jewish epistle writers, in fact, like all epistle writers, Jude likes to introduce new sections of his writing with the word beloved. John does this a lot, if you've noticed in his writing. That's not just a throwaway word. It's usually meant as the writer's indication to you that you've reached a new section. He wants your attention. He says, as he opens in verse three, he says, I had plans originally to write you on a different topic than the one I'm writing you on. And that different topic was concerning their common salvation. The word In Greek, for common is koinos, which just means common property. Today, we might say public property. In other words, Jude says he was to write to the Jewish Christians in the diaspora about the nature of the salvation they all shared. What was Jude's interest concerning their common salvation? Well, we don't know. He changed the topic. We never heard. So he never gave us what he was going to say. Perhaps he was going to echo a lot of the same themes that other Jewish writers have written, particularly, I think, of the writer of Hebrews, about how... The old covenant had given way to the new and that the things of the old were supposed to be replaced by things of the new. Something about perhaps the way the Jewish people were following in that faith. I don't know. In the end, it doesn't matter because it's evident the spirit wanted to tackle other things. And so the spirit directed you to write about other things. I think that's a lesson to take from this somewhat oblique and interesting reference that he has here to say, I used to have another topic. I mean, you could have just left that out, right? 
Why did the Spirit even include it? When we're operating under the Spirit, in any ministry we have, in any part of life, even in just a conversation with a neighbor about the Lord, we're supposed to be listening to the Lord, working in His will, following His lead. If we do that, it stands to reason our plans will naturally change. Our understanding of Scripture changes as we devote ourselves to a knowledge of Him. Why wouldn't our behavior change as it seeks to adapt to Him? If our understanding of Scripture and if our desires in ministry and if our plans in ministry never change, what does that say about our propensity to be listening to the Spirit? What are the odds that your first inclinations are always 100% equal to God's? That'd be the only way to explain never changing and following the Lord at the same time, right? No, if you never seem to change your mind about anything you ever heard in Scripture, if no one can teach you anything new, if you can't ever see things differently and perhaps pivot in where you think you're supposed to go in ministry, if you can't decide one day you're going to be here and the next day you're going to go there, my thought is you may not be listening. Jude listened, so he changed his plans. His new plan was to write an appeal to the church so that they would take action. He says he wants the church to contend earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly is actually a single word. In Greek, and its meaning is to struggle or to fight or to resist, but do so on behalf of someone or on behalf of something. And the fight in this case, he says, is for the faith. Now, how do you fight for faith? I mean, isn't faith something that just comes into the heart of a person by divine favor, by grace? You can't fight to establish faith. That tells us that the fight Jude wants here is not the fight to encourage someone to Become a believer. It's not a struggle to win souls. It's a fight to preserve the meaning of the gospel message, right? It's a fight over doctrine, over practice of truth, over truth itself. It's a fight against false teaching. That's the fight. And Jude hopes in his writing to stimulate the reader to fight against the distortion and the falsehoods that he knows are creeping into the church. And folks, this is a true fight. This is one that involves hostility, a form of hostility against others. Just not armed hostility, but it's a real battle nonetheless. Paul called it the good fight at points in his letters. He talks of keeping the faith in this context of fighting it all the way to the grave, making sure no one could rob the truth of its message. The struggle is to maintain faith as it was once handed down to the saints. That's the standard that he's fighting for. This is a very important principle expressed here in this book, very important in general in Scripture. That is that the faith, or we could say the content of the message of the gospel, to be more specific, is something that came once, came once, that means with the coming of Christ, with the fulfillment of his work on the cross and in his teaching, and in what he was transferring to the apostles by the Spirit, that is a finished work, once. The writer of Hebrews says this at the outset of his letter, another Jewish epistle. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. That writer makes a distinction between past days in which the truth was being given in pieces and parts over time in an effort to lead up to something so that when that something came, you'd recognize it. But now that that something, Christ, has come, there's no more need for any more piecing or parting out of truth. There's nothing more to deliver. The fulfillment of all things has come. The truth, the message of the gospel, the faith, delivered once. So to any school of thought, to any group, to any denomination, to any tradition, 
that says that there is something missing in our understanding of Christianity. And by missing, I don't mean in the fact that you haven't learned it yet, but missing in the sense that it's not been available to common knowledge yet. They are wrong, according to Scripture. The faith that saves the gospel of Jesus Christ was delivered in its entirety once. That moment was collectively the period of time in which the Lord walked the earth through to the time that the apostles delivered the messages he gave them, which became canon in Scripture. Remember, the word apostle, it literally means one sent with a message. And in this case, it's the faith that they were sent with, the gospel message. That was delivered once for all. Now, many have tried to come along since this time, as you know, and make claims that the original church missed something or another favorite is that they had it, but they lost it. And we found it. And that's why you don't have it. And we do. The Gnostics tried this in the time of Paul and Peter and John and the other apostle writers. The Judaizers were making a similar claim. The Catholic Church has made that claim over the centuries. They continue to make that claim today. The Mormons make that claim. Jehovah's Witnesses make that claim. Christian Science makes that claim. Many others have made that claim. They've got something you don't have. But Scripture says you have all that you need to come to an understanding of who Christ is, how we may be saved by him, and all that we need to know for godliness. Once delivered for the saints. Secondly, Jude says, it has been handed down. Handed down. The handing down refers to the way the apostles' teaching has been canonized and then forevermore shared with the faithful in Scripture. Handed down. We're not speaking here about some kind of Pope succession. We're not talking about handing down in the sense that men have to bless new generations of men in order for the message of the gospel to survive, etc., etc., nonsense. We're talking about the spiritual handing down that God himself is doing through the work of the Spirit in his word. It's a reference to Scripture and to the power of the Holy Spirit, not only to author it, but to protect it and to deliver it to the ears of those who will hear across both time and distance. To the one who might argue that I cannot believe until you can help me understand how the pygmy living on the island by himself will have an opportunity to know the gospel. My answer to that is the faith has been once delivered and will be handed down according to God's will. That person, should he be appointed to faith, will not miss that chance. It is self-evidently God's plan that the gospel be shared, that it be moved, that it be handed down in its original form from people through the proclamation of the gospel, etc. That's fine. But the instrument, the architect of that movement is the Holy Spirit, not men. Therefore, men do not have a chance to come in later and say that somehow we missed something. Because it's not dependent on men that we get it. It's dependent on God and he has all the power needed to make it come to us in the form he wishes. And the word of God, therefore, is the means by which the faith exists. And it's also the means by which it is kept pure having been once delivered. When you hear churches or pastors extolling the virtue of studying God's word, or pastors like me arguing for the exposition of Scripture from the pulpit as opposed to some other form of preaching, it's because the principle of the faith, having been once delivered and now handed down, demands that. Is the, if the faith is defined as the content of Scripture, it is to be handed down, it has to be exposited. It needs to be shared. And I don't mean that faith can't come until you know every word in the Bible. We know that's not the point. The gospel is the central message. But the gospel illuminated is what the word of God is provided for. That you'd understand it, who it's about, why it's important, what it means to us, what hope it gives us, what the future holds, all that it brings. Every word of God, the whole counsel, Paul said. So every Christian is an intended recipient for this letter. Just the mere fact that it's scripture proves that. 
And even though it might have been written in the first century, it might as well have been written in the 21st century. Because the faith in our church today is every bit as much under attack as the faith was in the time that Jude wrote this letter. If not more so, in fact, depending on how you measure it. And the attacks today range from subtle to full force. I mentioned some of the traditions that have come along and said that they have something new to offer. Well, that's a full force attack. That's denying what we have and instead trying to replace it. But the subtle ones are even more devious and they're in the church. They come from people inside as well as outside and they take many forms, but they all work in a similar way. They seek to introduce new thought, new requirements or to attach new meaning to the faith that's once delivered. And then with those new thoughts, they reinterpret or completely ignore the traditional views of Scripture. And in the end, it's always the same. The gospel then changes for that is the enemy's intent at the root of all of this to change the gospel message. I mean, he'd certainly like us to get a few verses of Jude wrong along the way, but his main concern is that we get the gospel wrong. And the gospel becomes no longer the message of our sin, Christ's righteousness, and the need to reconcile. Instead, because of these false teachers, in its place, the faith becomes a promise of wealth, or a promise of health, or a promise of acceptance, or a promise of happiness, that's the new one, or some other worthless, meaningless, temporal, and utterly bankrupt principle in place of an eternal salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as we go into the rest of this letter, consider as the audience of this letter, you and I are being called to engage in a fight. Not to return in time and fight the battles of the diaspora, but to stay where we are and fight the ones of today. But it's the same fight. And it does involve hostility of a measure of a certain kind. One that has a good aim. It's righteous anger, if you will. So as we move further through the letter over the next several weeks, we're going to come to understand who the enemies are, at least in type, in form, if not in name, and how we are to approach the fight of the faith that they force upon us by their false teaching. I hope you're going to join me in that battle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for a good start to our study, a chance to understand the importance of this letter. But mostly, Father, just to understand the importance of our faith and of the truth and of the need for Scripture to hold us to that truth. We have weeks ahead. We don't know what's coming, Father. We don't know what you have planned through this study. But we know it'll be something, Father, that will help us be more like you and serve you in a better way if only we devote ourselves to it. Let us take even what we've learned so far. Use it in some new way this week. Help us share this opportunity for others to come. Let us be a light. Let us be a witness. Let us hand down the faith that's been once delivered to us. Let us be useful to you in whatever way you call us. Thank you, Father, for the men and women who've helped to make tonight possible in all their gifts of service. And may we continue here, if you would will, in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.